Hey, hi, I'm Bonnie. Welcome to this podcast, Make Joy Normal, where we chat about homeschooling and family life. With my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, we address your questions and topics in a way that can create more joy in our lives. Please submit any questions you have by email or voice message in the links in the show notes. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend, like, or leave us a review. That's how we get the word out. Thanks for trying to make joy normal in your own life. I'm just going to pick it up here with part two of Revolution of Mercy. The last thing I had to said was that I was uh, talking about when, when I was really ill and I realized that Albert loved me so much and consequently uh, God must love me even more than that. Every small challenge or suffering in our lives provides an opportunity to either become submissive to the will of God or to rail and rebel against it. Sometimes a book or speaker ripens us for the conversion and receptivity. Another significant moment in my own conversion was a book that I read, The Temperament God Gave You by Art and Lorraine Bennett. This book explores the four temperaments or primary personality types defined in Greek philosophy. The Bennetts relate these temperaments to the Christian life. The book examines the the effect that formation has on natural temperament. If you're unfamiliar with the temperaments, here's a crash course. The phlegmatic wants it the easy way, the melancholic wants it the right way, the sanguine wants it the fun way, and the choleric wants it their way. I am primarily sanguine. Sanguines tend to be fun-loving, light-hearted, love social life, and contend towards being shallow. My vision of what a holy person looked like was someone more like my husband or my eldest daughter. They're contemplative, prayerful, appreciate solitude, and need quiet time. I am not by nature any of those things. I was hopeful that God was very merciful because I was not, by my own definition, holy. Reading this book flung open the doors to me to embrace the strengths of my own natural tendencies and to recognize my own weakness. When I became a Christian, I tried to restrain my natural tendencies because I didn't think those tendencies represented Christian behavior. Realizing that what God wants from me is my faithfulness to him and to use my natural gifts for the body of Christ made it possible to become who God intended me to be, sanguine and all. It even allowed me to nurture the prayer and con- prayerful and contemplative side of myself because I was free to expend the natural energy I had on the work he had given me. Our Lord has presented himself to me on hundreds, thousands of occasions, so why do these two stand out as significant moments in my journey? Because I was open. I saw that he was working in my life through others and through situations. Instead of turning away when he touched me on the shoulder, I was responsive to his promptings. I turned to face him and say, let it be done to me according to your word. I shudder to think of all the times when I, like a willful child, saw him offer me what was difficult or good, usually these two things come together, and I ignored him. Sometimes getting thrown off our horse is an opportunity to be receptive to the will of God. But there are so many little ways where we choose to be receptive and so, so many moments when we do not. It is easier to practice receptivity in small ways in in the mundane, daily tasks our lives are presented with. Practicing receptivity in small ways in the daily tasks of our lives prepares us for when God calls us to be receptive to larger challenges. Practice makes perfect, as they say. We live in a world that does not promote receptivity to God. We are stiff-necked people who want when we want, when we want it. There are distractions, possessions, and pressures that get in the way of living out his will on our daily walk. We have hardened our hearts again and again. This is what we practice, and consequently we have become very good at it. 
to combat this worldly reality, recognizing and fostering receptivity in our homes is vital to our own spiritual growth and to our children's. In order to experience the receptivity or softness of heart required for conversion, we must work toward an environment that facilitates conversion. Forming a receptive heart means praying for and practicing humility. It means reducing the chaos in our lives so that we recognize and hear above din, promptings of God's will when they are presented to us. As parents, we are the first glimpse that our children have of a God who is love. Through our love and tender care of them, children begin to establish a love and trust that will mature into their love and trust of our Creator. A baby begins to understand the limitless love of a limitless Creator before he can even understand that there is one. We develop a parent-child attachment that fosters relationships later on with friends, with spouse, and more importantly with God Almighty Himself. By our tender and loving responses to our babies and children, Conversion is what we want most for our children. We want them to constantly be turning toward or returning to God, and they will learn this way of life from us. They learn the habit of virtue by our example. They learn repentance and perseverance by our example. They need to see us becoming more Christ-like. They practice this turning and returning, loving and forgiving, by watching us. We witness the beauty of drawing good out of evil, if we allow it. We can guide our children and discipline our children in a manner that keeps them receptive. If they are receptive to us, we can keep them cooperative and open to our guidance. Also, living in an atmosphere of receptivity and softness, they learn how to be soft towards God. They remain open. They learn to remain open to a life of conversion. Raising children that will constantly be turning and returning their hearts back to God must be the ultimate goal of our lives as parents. Our Lord doesn't ask us to be successful. He asks us only to be faithful. Children's openness and responsiveness to the will of God are manifestations of the grace of our faithfulness as Catholic parents. A quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Parents have the first responsibility for the education of their children. They bear witness to this responsibility first by creating a home where tenderness, forgiveness, respect, fidelity, and disinterested service are the rule. The home is well suited for education in the virtues. This requires an apprenticeship in self-denial, sound judgment, and self-mastery, the preconditions of all true freedom. Parents should teach their, teach their children to subordinate the material and instinctual dimensions to interior and spiritual ones. Parents have a great responsibility to give good example to their children by knowing how to acknowledge their own failings to their children. Parents will be better able to guide and correct them. That's from paragraph 2223. A receptive heart develops in a climate that supports receptivity. We must do our best to create this atmosphere in our homes. Creating that type of home, the one where tenderness, forgiveness, respect, fidelity, and disinterested service are the rule, form us, the parents, at the same time it forms our children. An openness to God develops more fully when we live in an environment where our defenses and our children's defenses aren't up all the time. Disciplining our children and walking beside them instead of dispensing punishments or rewards will help form their hearts correctly. It is also our best opportunity to avoid a defensive attitude, solicit cooperation, and circumvent rebellion as they get older. While the Church doesn't appear to give us clear guidelines in 
disciplinary tactics with our children, we can read in the scriptures, in her teachings, and in the writings of popes and saints about the beauty and dignity with which she guides us in relationships with others. Those others include our children. If we don't discipline with a system of punishment and rewards, then what? The following chapters will help to answer this question. We will look at why walking beside our children in discipleship is vital, and how we guide behavior, counsel misbehavior, and secure cooperation without carrots or sticks, thereby preserving our God-given authority while guarding dignity and fostering receptivity in our children. Before we move on, here's a short summary of this chapter's key points. One, love is something that we do. Two, we intend to raise our children lovingly, but it's hard to remember to act loving when we are under stress. Three, in trying to avoid being too harsh or too lenient, we employ carrot and stick measures as the middle way, the carrot and stick disciplinary approach is a contractual method of operating. Five, we'll experience more peace in family life if discipline is relational or covenantal. Six, discipleship or relational discipline fosters conversion, softness, and receptivity. Seven, conversion, softness, and receptivity in our own lives will help keep our children open to our guidance and also open to God's holy will. Chapter two, what is a family and why is it so hard? Our goal as Christian parents should be evident. We set out in married life with lucid ideas and meaningful ideals of how to raise our children, but along the way we often lose sight of why we're doing what we do. Sleepless nights, strong emotions, children who don't behave the way we think they should, even though we tried to do all the right things, these can start to blur the objective. Occasionally we start to wonder why we had ideals in the first place. Occasionally we may even start to wonder why we had children. In order to get through these moments, we must seek ongoing encouragement and support through family, community, and the church in tangible ways. Furthermore, we need to know what a family is. We need to know its purpose. We need to know that what we do each day, picking up toys, correcting behavior, having an inane conversation, corresponds to a Christ-centered goal. It's difficult to cultivate the objectivity needed to respond lovingly to our children when we're wandering about confused and exhausted most of the time. In short, we need to keep our eyes on heaven, but our feet firmly on the ground. But what about when the ground beneath us feels shaky and uncertain? Sometimes the daily challenges of family life spiral us downwards and the goal of heaven seems remote. Understanding what God wants of us helps us to gain clarity. Understanding inspires our actions. The long-term goal of Christian parents must be kept fresh in our mind. Pope St. John Paul II gave us a rallying cry in his apostolic exhortation, Familiaris Consortio. So often repeated, family, become what you are. This phrase is an appeal to live family life in Christian fullness. We respond with a gut feeling. Yes, that's what I want, to help my family become what it was meant to be. Our draw to this rallying cry indicates the need to understand the family's mission more fully. But what does that mean? I often wondered until I read the document, which turns out to be the how-to manual that we need to become what we are, and offers us a path to make sense of vocational choice that seems some days not to make any sense at all. Let's face it, though, not many families with several small children are putting the reading of encyclicals and exhortations high on their list of priorities. Even just breathing a prayer now and again can seem difficult to manage sometimes. This little book hopefully sheds some light on some of the central themes of Familiar's Consortio. 
In Familiaris Consortio, Pope John Paul II defines what a family is, its identity. He also defines what a family does, its mission. Understanding the identity and the mission of family is essential to achieving our goals as parents. Once we're certain what that goal is, we're better equipped to fulfill it. Life is hard enough with children. Not knowing where we are supposed to be headed is a serious handicap. So we need to look deeply at the identity and mission of the family. The identity of the family, according to St. John Paul II, is an intimate community of life and love. Intimate means close, warm, personal. Not just people living in the same home or living in constant discord. Of course, we share sorrow and pain, but also deep joy and fellowship and sticky hands. We are called to live in close and warm relationships with our family members, sometimes closer than you ever imagined. When most of us envision our future before we had a family, we hope for a beautiful closeness. There is a universal desire to live family life as an intimate community of life and love. John Paul II says that the mission of the family is to guard, reveal, and communicate love. The mission reveals what a family does, what it can and should do. To guard something means to keep it out of danger, to protect it. It's our mission to guard love, to guard the love we have for our children, and not endanger the filial love they have for us. It also means to guard the integrity of authentic love, what God intended love to be. Revealing love means to display love, to exhibit love, to make known. When we reveal love within the family, it will spill out into our villages, the grocery store, soccer field, and playground. To communicate love means to give it to another, to transmit it from one to the other. In transmitting our love to our children, we give them God, who is love. To be a family is ordained by God. A family is the literal fruit of the sacrament of marriage. We are better equipped to fulfill the mission if we're certain what the mission is. Its mission is not easy. In fact, it's hard. For Catholic parents to live good Catholic lives in our day requires heroic virtue. It's a quote by Father John Harden. Christ speaks to us words from one of our spiritual fathers. That's how hard it is. We have to have heroic virtue. In other, word, we, in other words, we have to be heroes. That means we have to be saints. We all know that's hard. It's hard because we're tired, not only tired, but stressed about many things, particular, particularly how our children are going to turn out. God doesn't just ask us to do this hard thing, though. He also gives us the tools we need through his church. We don't have to face the responsibility of it alone. There is grace in so many forms. We are the body of Christ, and our tiredness of today can be shared and worn by others who aren't raising small children right now in prayer, service, and love. The day will come when it won't be so hard, and we can be the hands of Christ and share our wisdom, energy, and time with others. The hope of every Christian mother or father is to raise holy children. We desire our children to unite their own wills to God's holy will. That doesn't mean perfect children, not even compliant children. Frequently, we equate good behavior with holiness. Good behavior and compliance might be signs of holiness, but not necessarily. Lord knows I am not well behaved, and yet I am trying to do God's holy will. It's difficult to quantify whether we are raising holy children. Just as we must do, they are working out their salvation through the course of their lives. If we ever feel that we've arrived in our personal holiness or the holiness of our children, we're in deep trouble. We can't even think we've achieved complete personal growth, wisdom, or education. 
Heaven is the perfect end, and we must work daily to improve, no matter where we are in the journey, and proceed with trust that our children will follow our example. We can't think we are perfectly holy because only He knows, and only He can make us holy. Do they love God? Do they desire His holy will? That's as certain as it gets. Come what may, we must accept them exactly where they're at, and proceed heavenward at all times with trust and tenderness, and especially patience. Patient endurance is the perfection of charity, St. Ambrose. We cannot force them to be holy. We can't even force them to behave in a way that looks holy. We simply cannot make our children behave a certain way. The only thing we can actually control is our own response. The only person's holiness we can secure is our own. We can offer reward or consequences for their behavior and hope they will respond, or we can form their hearts by deed and example. If we model the behavior we expect from them, guide them lovingly and educate them in the ways of the Lord, we increase the chances that our children will choose Him. We're required in our mission here on earth to share the gospel. The nature of sharing it is to offer in kindness, not to insist, not to hope the other asks, but to offer what we have. Offering is both active and passive. Actively, we hold something out in love in order that the other may accept it. Passively, we offer the gospel in our gentleness, patience, restraint, prayer, and fasting. Our most effective tool in forming our children is how we respond to them. That is the authentic sharing of the gospel. When the love of God is offered tenderly, our children allow themselves to be vulnerable and be loved. We are all compelled to greater goodness when responses are warm and genuine. Our children will be more responsive to our requests when we are tender. They will sometimes misbehave. If we can accept what is happening as something that God in his wisdom has allowed, perhaps we can respond graciously. Sometimes silence is a virtuous response. Sometimes silence is the gospel. Whenever anything disagreeable or displeasing happens to you, remember Christ crucified and be silent. St. John of the Cross. We must respect the dignity of all people, including our children. We are a pro-life people. We believe in the fullness of the teachings of the Church. We need to respect life from conception until its natural end and everything in between. That includes those from the age of two through the age of 18. It's easy to forget the dignity of people between the ages of two and 18. Why is that? We can remember the dignity of the infants in the womb, of the elderly or the infirm. We can remember the dignity of the mentally handicapped. Why then is it onerous to keep the dignity of two to 18 year olds fresh in our minds? Here are three reasons. One, objectivity. The responsibility we have to respect life is objective and it's easier to be objective with people who aren't our children. They aren't our primary temporal responsibility. Even when we are active in our pro-life work, the weight of how they will turn out isn't upon us. In fact, we aren't even thinking of outcomes at all. We are thinking how we ought to think. That if our lives are well-ordered, we worship God, serve others, and share the good news in thought and deed that we're doing what we're called to do. We know that God's in charge, and as Mother Teresa put it, that God does not require that we be successful, only that we be faithful. When it comes to our children, however, it is different. We are so invested in their formation that we become entrenched in a subjective rather than objective view and thus forget the, to consider 
and thus forget to consider their dignity as well as our responsibility to form them. Number two, our kids try our patience daily. People we don't have to live with day in and day out aren't trying our patience every return. Typically, the preborn, the elderly, the physically and mentally infirm aren't sassing us. We don't experience the exercise of their will against us. Sassy people are annoying. Our children feel safe with us, or at least they should. That's why they're often at their worst with us, and we are at our worst with them sometimes too. All the irritation, frustration, and insecurities of their lives can be released at home. This often surfaces in acting out, anger, and sass. We aren't usually getting that kind of flack from babies in the womb or the sick, the poor, or the dying. Even if they are unkind, we are able to see their dignity because they don't represent an image of our own shortcomings or a sign of our own success. We experience the situation in a far less personal way. Because we aren't emotionally attached to the behavior of the baby in the womb or the elderly or the sick or dying, we seek justice as our goal, ensuring that others receive what is theirs by natural right and working towards their inherent dignity by truly practicing disinterested service. Three, the message of dignity for our children is not overtly stated. Respect for the elderly, infirm, and unborn is what we hear about. The pro-life cause provides a voice for the voiceless, those who cannot speak for themselves. We should be reminded of this constantly, but we should also be reminded of the dignity of our own children. We must also be a voice for the voiceful, the one who can speak very well for himself, but not always maturely. We must be the appropriate voice, the guiding voice for the noisy, the whiny, the one who leaves his coat on the floor, the one who spills the juice, the one complaining, even the cynical, the sneering, and the snide. It's easy to forget that our children require pro-life dignity because we aren't constantly being reminded. We are hearing about how to treat our neighbor or others. It's easy to forget that this idea includes firstly our spouse and children. It is important to find ways to remind ourselves of the dignity of our own children. Sometimes ideas expressed succinctly can help us to remind important tenets of the kind of life we want to have in our families. Several years ago, we had a priest that we called a gold nugget priest. He summarized his homilies with short, pithy statements or nuggets, many of which have stayed with me. Perhaps the most formative of his pithy directives was this. Don't be small-hearted, narrow-minded, and short-sighted. You must be big-hearted, broad-minded, and far-sighted. Sometimes we need these kind of verbal cues or hooks to hang things on. When I was a young mom and my first daughter was going through her catechism classes, an amazing thing happened. I was a brand new Catholic, poorly formed, ignorant, but eager to learn. We were using a book written in question and answer format. One of the very first questions was, why did God make me? I was astounded at the question. I wondered why on earth they would ask small children such a very large question. Wasn't that the very question that theologians and philosophers discussed and debated? What was a six-year-old going to do with a ludicrous question like that? The answer caught me completely off guard. God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so that I can be happy with him forever in the next. I was stunned. Why had no one ever told me that? Why did I not know that? I was stunned by the simplicity of the answer and also by the magnitude of the call. I should have had a hook to hang such an important idea on. My life is not my own. It is his. I must give all of myself to the purpose of loving him. If I can remember why God made me, then perhaps being big-hearted, broad-minded, and far-sighted is something I can actually accomplish. If I can remember why God made me, 
I can more effectively keep my eye on heaven. If I can remember every single day why God made me, I could be a better mom. God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world so that I can be happy with him forever in the next. We memorize that answer because when we have it memorized, we can call on it when we need it the most. I'm not doing this for me, Lord. I'm doing it for eternity with you. There are other important phrases for us to be able to call upon. We need to remember that we are pro-life people, that dignity is for all, so that we can treat our children and spouses accordingly. We also need to remember that a family is an intimate community of life and love, and that what a family does is to guard, reveal, and communicate love. If we have those words burned in our minds, we can face the challenges and doubts that face us in forming a truly Christian home. To reiterate what a family is and its aim, one, the goal of marriage is to grow in holiness and get to heaven. Two, that's harder than it sounds, but we have the church's help. Three, if we understand the definition and mission of the family better, we'll be more likely to live up to the goal of growing in holiness and getting to heaven. Four, our most effective means of transmitting the gospel is by loving example. Five, dignity is for all people, even the sassy ones. Six, we need to remember why God made us. Seven, memorizing key ideas and phrases can help us refocus our efforts to serve Him.